Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.reeddesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Last night, I get a phone call from Galit driving home from a Baton Rouge Symphony rehearsal. Concert. Concert. I'm bored. Entertain me. (laughs) And our conversation went to um, Enneagram types. And we were laughing so hard that my husband, who was trying to do some late night email catch up, looked over, glared at me, picked up his laptop and walked into the other room because we were just being too loud and distracting and ridiculous. I know, we were we were roasting each other and then he left and I was like, let's roast Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought we would kind of um, let you all in on some of that conversation and Enneagram... <laughs> Double read style, Jackie and Galit. <laughs> Every once in a while, I get obsessed with it. Yes. And yes, I just want to read everything. Yeah. What's your Enneagram type? And t- tell the listeners what that means. I am a six. I am the loyalist and highly anxious. Um, very loyal, obviously committed security oriented and my basic fear is of being without support and guidance and so of course when I'm bored I'm like somebody talk to me (laughs) I need support (laughs) and so I'm a type one and full disclosure and my Enneagram knowledge is very galit based I am much more of a Uh Myers-Briggs evangelist and if you tell me what is an INFJ I can go on about that forever but okay so Enneagram type one principled purposeful self-controlled and perfectionistic rude (laughs) basic desire to have to be good to have integrity it's like oh gosh yes that is me well organized orderly fastidious and trying to maintain high standards. It's like on the one hand, that's absolutely me. On the other hand, I'm like, she sounds like an uptight drag, man. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's how you know that that's your type is when you read the description, you're like, that sounds like the worst one. (laughs) (laughs) How brutal to live that existence every day you killed me last night when you when you roasted me about filling in the blanks please tell please tell this story yes so 
the Enneagram Institute provides levels of development. So basically what these people look like at healthy, average and unhealthy levels. And <laughs> at one point it talked about highly reactive, kind of uh, seeking an answer because there's anxiety in, in not knowing. And so the tendency Indecision. to like fill in the blanks that's a, that's a problem for type sixes like galit and so i told her like one of my favorite things that makes me laugh the most about her is she is very like you'll fill in the blanks with like these disaster scenarios and so the example i gave was uh so galit chris and i went to a restaurant pre-covid uh chris and i went to a restaurant the other day and you got food poisoning <laughs> no like like no we had a nice time i was just <laughs> trying to tell you about the nice date night we had. but it makes sense that your personality type is uncertainty or must prepare for every possibility yes there is security in acknowledging how poorly things could go is it any wonder that i'm an oboist no, in fact, I want you to take a look at these healthy, average, and unhealthy manifestations of a type six Enneagram personality and tell me how they manifest themselves in your read making, performing, and pedagogy. It's like a teaching statement, but you're criticizing yourself on public display. Great. <laughs> the first word is hysterical. <laughs> Feeling persecuted. And that others are out to get them. Do you, have you struggled with feeling like your audience is out to get you? No, but sometimes I feel like the concert master is out to get me. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, oh, did you not like that A? Why are you giving me that look? Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> Why is it only two A's and not three this time? Hmm? Do you not like my A? Why are you holding that so long? <laughs> to compensate for insecurities, they become sarcastic and belligerent blaming others for their problems oh, that's kind of what we just did <laughs> <laughs> or like every time you miss a note you like take out take your oboe out of your mouth and look at your read like hmm. oh my god <laughs> looking at the read when you play a wrong note that yes i never thought of blaming the oboe for your problems it's so funny. <laughs> how dare you <laughs> Uh, they become evasive, indecisive, cautious, procrastinating, and ambivalent. Hello! <laughs> Do you ever procrastinate on starting to learn rep? Oh yeah, all the time. Or like I'll use I'll use practicing to procrastinate read making, or I'll use read making to procrastinate practicing. Oh my gosh, yes. Did I just read you right now? No, but I feel like you're giving me good hints with which to like live my life. <laughs> Because I'm the perfectionist, <laughs> so I feel like I have to do it all, all the time, and I have um, to feel productive. So if it's like, you can feel productive <laughs> by doing A, so you don't have to do B, and vice versa. Community builders. Oboists do that. We build community around our A. <laughs> Did you have a bad A experience? You're talking about this tuning A quite I a bit. I really bad. Can I? Okay, we're getting into it. So when I was in grad school... I was a terrible read maker. I'm still not an awesome read maker, but I make it work, you mm -hmm. know, but when I was in grad school, I was a really awful read maker. And uh, I had a particularly bad read. And in orchestra, the concert master rejected my A in a rehearsal. I gave the A's and then at break, he went to the conductor and said, I don't want any more A's from her. Aww. I want the, I want the other oboist to do it. Uh, no wonder I'm a six. Yeah. <laughs> we need more positive. We need to end on an up note. Okay, you don't just want to talk about my personal trauma? No. Um, able to elicit strong emotional responses from others. Very appealing, endearing, lovable, affectionate. Dedicated to individuals and movements in which they deeply believe. You, that is definitely yeah. you. Belief in self leads to true courage, positive thinking, leadership, and rich self-expression. Aww. If that's not a healthy oboist, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And to that concert master, my reads have gotten better. And by the way, it was in tune. It was just a little bright. So that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, Jackie, we got to go to the ones. Okay. Oh my gosh. I think this is what made us like laugh till we cry last night. Can be highly dogmatic, self-righteous, intolerant, and inflexible. Dealing in absolutes where they alone know the truth. Very severe in judgments while rationalizing their own actions. And this is definitely me, especially with details. So we just released the Miles Maynard versus the band mom. Mm -hmm. After I published the video, I decided I did not like the font on the title card that I used for the sentence Miles Maynard versus the band mom. And it like ate at me the entire day. I was like, we should have used the font that we have for the quote cards. We should have had brand <laughs> cohesion. What was I thinking? Because we have three fonts that we use for the podcast, like branding and whatnot. And I was just like, why did you use that non-branding font? It, it doesn't even look good. It's too wide. It's too big. Okay. So that is like me at my worst. And yes, that Classic. will happen musically. If I'm listening to a recording, is this good enough to put online? Like, well, you kind of clip that one no in the middle of the phrase and probably shouldn't go online. <laughs> it's like <laughs> um <laughs> highly picky and perfectionistic. Uh, this in my teaching, I actually have to really watch myself because uh -huh. I am one of those people I'll find myself like again, again. Again, a little higher. Again, a little lower. Again, faster. <laughs> and my students will laugh because I'll be like, oh, I just cycled on you. And they'll be like, yeah, can we take a little break? <laughs> and my practice style is like repetition, quick analysis, thick, eh, rep, repeat, 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 repeat. But that's something I've learned over time from like looking over and the students like one eye's going this way, one eye's going the other way. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a type one. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> can we talk about me at my best now? What do they say? Yeah. The best. Principled, fair, objective, and ethical. That is absolutely you. I feel like bassoonists are really like, let's just do what's best for everyone. Do you remember when we did the survey of what is your Myers-Briggs? Yeah. And INFJ is like the most rare personality type, supposedly, but it was overwhelmingly the highest occurring among bassoonists. And then even the ones who weren't INFJs were INFTs. Wait, there is no T. INFP. Wait. P's. Thank you. INFPs. Yeah. Yes. So the idea that there is um, shared personality traits, I mean... I think definitely that is true. I love this sentence here. Humane, inspiring, and hopeful, the truth will be heard. That is so you and so everything that you do with the bassoon, uplifting music by native composers and commissioning music. Like, yes. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. When I hear that sentence, all I hear is like, I'm the equivalent of the Kool-Aid man, like bursting through the walls. Like, hey, I've got something to say. <laughs> the truth will be heard. Over and over again. <laughs> I'm like, she sounds great. Invite her to the party. She won't be too much. <laughs> okay, I just saw the word anal compulsive. So it's time to wrap this up. <laughs> chemical city double reads is a full service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments cane accessories and sheet music double read dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code dr dish all caps no spaces visit them in baton rouge louisiana or online at chemicalcityreads.com Barton Cane offers a huge variety of GSP cane. Leave the cane processing to them. Use coupon code DoubleReadDishRocksMyWorld for free shipping on your next Barton Cane order. www.bartoncane.com We are so 
happy to be talking with Miles Maynard, bassoonist and contrabassoonist with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Miles. Hello. I am super excited, 11 out of 10, to be on this podcast. <laughs> That's awesome. We always love to start by asking our guests how they started on their instrument. So would you please tell us how you came to play the bassoon? Absolutely. So I've always been into music and I played piano as a little guy. And when band was offered in sixth grade, I chose the clarinet. I don't know why. I think my dad had gone to the store and asked for an oboe. And they said, nope, that's too hard. Here's a clarinet. <laughs> So he came, he was like, well, I don't know. They're both black instruments, so it <laughs> doesn't matter. So I had a clarinet and I was like, great, love it. And um, in eighth grade, the band director needed someone to switch over to bassoon because there was a piece, I believe, that she wanted to play. And there were no bassoons in the, or in the band in my middle school. And I was traveling primarily via cartwheel at this moment of time. And so, yeah, like I, I wasn't so much into walking as I was into cartwheel <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> it wasn't like a wheelbarrow. You were just cartwheeling yourself. Yes. It wasn't exactly. like a horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no, the gymnastics one. And so she looked out and she probably saw me doing that all over the band hall and thought, okay, let's give him something to do. And so she said, look, look, little boy, this is the scholarship of phone. Wow. And so I brought it home and my parents were like, what is that? It's a scholarship of phone. They're like, uh, anyway, I ended up loving it partially because I think, you know, I was the only one playing the bassoon and I got all of this attention. Got to sit up in the front because I was suddenly now way behind, you know, I, I had just started this instrument in eighth grade. But I ended up being the best at that. Um, and I tried other instruments as I, as I uh, continued through high school, marching, still marching clarinet and marching some trumpet and sort of keeping up the piano lessons. Uh, very angry piano teacher. She should have been very angry because I've never practiced anymore. But the bassoon was clicking. I was really liking the bassoon. So um, that's how I started. I was just uh, an eighth grade, eighth grade dealio. And at what point did you start to view the bassoon as a potential career path or something that you wanted to pursue in college? Was it the word scholarship a phone? <laughs> <laughs> it was not the word scholarship a phone. I just kind of was... I don't know. I had uh, I was getting good feedback from the band directors and finding good luck at all region band or all state orchestra. And uh, I just, I always knew, I mean, probably middle school onward, I knew that I wanted to play music. And I don't know if I was thinking about career. I was just thinking I will keep playing music and I will play music in college. I don't know if I was thinking further on than that really. Um, but I knew that music was gonna be the thing. And uh, I was taking bassoon lessons my senior year at first from the bassoon professor at the University of Texas. So I could already kind of imagine myself at the school that I would eventually attend for my undergrad. So I was just kind of thinking one more step. I wasn't thinking adult life yet. I just knew that I liked playing the bassoon a lot. Would you walk us through your training educational path and how you got to your current position? Yes. My path is full of meeting the right people at the right time, having a good interaction with them musically and personally, and then another opportunity being born out of that. It happened over and over. The first time it happened um, was in high school and the Austin Symphony came to play in our gym. And I got to sit next to the principal bassoonist there, Bill Lewis, he is still the principal bassoonist in the Austin Symphony. And I think he liked the way that I played, although it was, you know, very uh, elementary in uh, quality yet. And uh, he remembered me when I ended up going to school at University of Texas, where the Austin Symphony also rehearses or rehearsed at the time. And so he gave me a gig 
when I was an undergrad playing with the Austin Lyric Opera, which he's also the principal bassoon. And I started learning very quickly on the job, all of the things that I didn't know how to do on the bassoon. Uh, there were even moments where he said, okay, we stopped three times for you in this rehearsal. Let me play this part so you don't get fired. Just sit there. And then he would play it. And then we'd work <laughs> on it after rehearsal. So it was a real baptism by fire. So uh, so then I was playing with the Austin Symphony a little bit while, while uh, playing an undergrad. And then I, um, I realized, or I, I learned that the Austin Symphony needed a contrabassoon player, basically. And so they started hiring me for that a bunch while I was still an undergrad as well. So that became a real steady gig for me. So I was getting all this contrabassoon experience, whether I wanted it or not. Then I went to Houston for my uh, master's degree and I studied with Benjamin Caymans at Rice University. I studied with Kristen Wolf Jensen at University of Texas, which was fantastic. So then I'm in Houston. He's like, oh, wow, you, you kind of sound good on the contrabassoon. What's that about? And I was like, well, I played a lot of contra in Austin, in the Austin Symphony. And so I, I finish up my graduate school there and um, Ben came and gets a call from Ann Bilderbach, who is the principal of students in the Kansas City Symphony. She said, we need someone who, play, who needs to play a one year position with the Kansas City Symphony. And do you have anyone who's just graduated who can play both? And he thought of me because of all that Austin Symphony experience. I could play the contra a little bit. So there I am flying up to Kansas City for a one-year position with the symphony there. Then they hold an audition. That's a 15-minute drive. That's easy. And I end up getting that job. And so, you know, when, you, when you're applying for a contrabassoon position, I, it's, it can be difficult because the instrument is so large, it's difficult to travel with. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't own their own contrabassoon. Well, I was playing on the orchestra's contrabassoon, so I was very comfortable with that. And I didn't have to travel. And I was ready for the opportunity. So it really lined up just right. So then uh, I got that job and I ended up playing there for three years. And then Bill Bookman, who is the assistant principal bassoonist in Chicago Symphony Orchestra, asked the, some of the civic orchestra musicians, the training orchestra of the Chicago Symphony, hey, do you guys know anyone who lives relatively within the area the contrabassoon job in the Chicago Symphony has been open for five years and we need to kind of get our feelers out there and listen to people who are available. And some of my former UT colleagues were in civic. And then also people I'd met in music festivals over the summer were also in civic. And so my name came up a couple of times, Miles Maynard in Kansas City, Miles Maynard in Kansas City. So I get a random call from a 312 area code. This is back when you would answer the phone for an unknown number. Because <laughs> now I would never answer. But this was, I, I, my mom already lived in Chicago, by the way, which is just completely random. And so I was, you know, often imagining someday playing in the Chicago Symphony, not just because it's Chicago Symphony, but because my family is there, it'll be perfect. And so I get this phone call and I answer it back and it's the Chicago Symphony Orchestra personnel manager saying, hey, you want to sub with us on a weekend? And I thought, what? <laughs> what? Okay, so I was like, I mean, I guess. So then I'm You're driving like, Steve, over there. are you there. pranking me? Is this a prank, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And he was like, my name's not Steve. <laughs> and, so, and so I... Uh, I'm on the road with the Kansas City Contrabassoon in tow to go sub with them. And I, so I finally, I get to sit in with the orchestra and play a little bit and play some concerts. And my mom gets to go to them because she lives here. And it, and it worked out. I sounded uh, the way they needed me to sound. Like we were, we were a good team. It seemed like a good fit. And they also had me play a lot of bassoon. And I thought that was interesting. I've always enjoyed the bassoon a little bit more than the contrabassoon and had been wary of any larger contrabassoon jobs, larger than Kansas City, because a lot of times the larger the job, the more contrabassoon and the less bassoon, because they have a bigger section. They don't really need you to play the bassoon necessarily. That's how some orchestras feel, was my understanding. And so I was playing a lot of bassoon and contra for this concert, important second bassoon. 
And I said, Bill, is this how I would actually, is this how the job would actually work? And he said, yeah, we need, we need someone who can do both. We need a real team player. I thought, oh, well, maybe I would audition for this job. I wasn't going to, I wasn't ever going to take another contra bassoon audition because I was primarily interested in the bassoon. But this was starting to look good. Um, and also the fact that I got to sit in with this orchestra with all of these people who I would have thought of were really scary and intimidating. And then they were just normal people practicing during intermission and, you know, working on things that were hard for them. And it was a very human experience. I thought, oh, they're just doing the same thing that we're doing in Kansas City. They're, they're just uh, shooting for the highest bar that they can. I can do that. And so I thought, well, I guess I better take that audition when it comes up. So it came up and I worked my very hardest and uh, I, it was a good day for me, a good couple of days. It's a multiple day process. And so I got it. So, but it all started sitting next to Bill Lewis in my high school gym. I really didn't know that. If that hadn't gone well, I wouldn't have been invited to play with the Lyric Opera. I wouldn't have been invited to play with the Austin Symphony for a gig. I would have not played all that Contra. I wouldn't have sounded good in Contra in grad school. Ben Kamins wouldn't have given my name to Ann Builder back in Kansas City. I just would have, I mean, it all is a, it's just one thing after the other worked out just perfectly. Very, very lucky person. I have a multi-part question. So I'd love to hear about your audition preparation and how you approached um, getting ready for this opportunity generally, but especially I bet I would imagine not having had the experience kind of having to balance the time between the two instruments and navigate that might be unique to other types of auditions. Um, I'd love to hear about your actual experience auditioning and what those days were like. Um, and actually, let's just do the two-part question. I'll save my third part for I'll do a okay. follow-up. <laughs> sure. Enough. That sounds great. Yeah. So when I, when I got the list of audition excerpt requirements for the Chicago Symphony audition, it was relatively hefty. It wasn't a total nightmare. Um, it wasn't complete parts or anything. And I usually could have done that. And they do that for some other uh, positions in the orchestra. But there was uh, a lot of bassoon excerpts and a lot of contra bassoon excerpts. And some of them were really hard and mean. And, but a lot of standard stuff, you know? It's just like, can you play both, even if it's hard music? And so uh, I think two things really helped me prepare. The first thing was that I divided all of the excerpts into A, B, and C day excerpts and then chose specific excerpts that were extra tough as everyday practice excerpts. So if I wake up one day, I just say, okay, well, there's a big old list of music in front of me. Don't need to look at that. I need to look at what is an A day excerpt. Oh, it's only like four or five excerpts for the bassoon, three or four for the contra, and then these everyday excerpts as well. So it's, I mean, it's a full day practicing. I mean, there's no, there was no getting around that for me. If I want to sound good, I have to practice a bunch. There's, and there's no shortcuts for me. And uh, by the end of the day, I had gotten through everything I needed to for A day, the A day. There's stuff on B and C day that's bothering me. It was literally not even in my mind at all. It, it really uh, helped me compartmentalize and stress about and work on only the things that I needed to get through that day. I think it would be very easy for me to just get lost in the same most difficult excerpts every day and then things are slipping by and I forget about them. Uh, and then the second thing that was really important was actually visualization. And this is something, Miles, if you're listening right now to podcasts while making reads, first of all, put the file down. You've done enough. Second of all, take this advice. Okay. So, the second thing would be visualization. One of the things they asked for in the contrabassoon portion of the audition was a minuet from a Bach cello suite on the contrabassoon. Are you serious? So that is just wrong. Nonetheless, that's what they wanted. They wanted a hippo to do a ballet. <laughs> 
So, <laughs> and so I just, I was imagining, um, I immediately imagined all of the people in the orchestra in the Chicago Symphony that intimidated me to be listening with their arms crossed in the audience. And then in the middle of all of them, maestro Ricardo Muti, listening to a Bach cello suite played on the contrabassoon. I thought, this is the worst idea. And I thought, you know what? I mean, I mean, you know, I was shaking just thinking about it. And so my goal from that moment was to be able to visualize that in a positive way, visualize it going well, and then enjoying the experience and me on stage being in control, looking at the different angles of the room, visualizing all the aspects of it. That really, really helped. It really turned around my initial poor outlook on what could have happened. And the, in the finals, when the screen indeed did come down, Maestro Ricardo Muti was sitting there and all those other people, and there was a Bach cello suite and there was a contrabassoon and I had to play this. It was like it had already happened. It was very bizarre. Um, I just, I remember thinking before I started, well, this goes well, there's nothing to be nervous about. I'm sure I was a bit nervous, but I was like, I've seen this a, a number of times already and it's a good performance. And it's just because I had visualized it, that really helped. So the organization and then also the visualization was very helpful. I was lucky to have my mom live nearby. That really helped. Um, driving to Chicago from Kansas City and staying overnight at my mom's house was nice. For the finals, the orchestra had a hotel arrangement. And so I stayed in a hotel. And I remember waking up that morning more nervous than I've ever been in my life. I was literally vibrating out of the bed. I could hardly brush my teeth. And so um, I luckily had woken up early enough to take a lot of very deep breaths. I'm not, I'm not really someone who meditates very much, but I know the power of a cleansing breath and I needed a bunch of them. That's basically how I woke up was through vibration and I, I needed control of my muscles to operate <laughs> the instrument. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a lovely experience because of the visualization. It was, uh, it was sort of, it's, it felt like it was something I had already seen before. I, I remember seeing, um, I, think, I think it was Lindsey Vaughn, who is a mm. Olympic skier. And I don't remember, it's called the slalom, I think, the downhill slalom, where there's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I don't know how old she was, like six or something. And she was going for a 50th gold medal of the day or something. <laughs> and she had to beat the world record by 30 minutes or something, you know, something ridiculous. And, you know, they shoved a microphone into her face and like, how do you feel? Are you nervous? Are you going to mess up? And she just kind of looked at them very calmly. And she said, oh, no, I've. I've visualized this so many times. This this is a this is a world record run. <laughs> and they were like, uh, and she just went down the mountain and she got it. Mm. So the visualization was clearly a huge part of of her training, not just the physical and the and the muscle memory repetitions and all that, but it's interesting when you visualize, or when I do, when I hear something in my head or I visualize it. A lot of times I, I, there's the negative stuff in there. I'm like, well, how do I want this to go? And I'll like hear wrong notes. And I think, well, let's rewind that tape and visualize it with the right notes. And it's literally a new experience. And I can hear, I can feel my brain going, oh, that's, I like that. Let's, let's have those synapses fire in that order instead. Um, I think this is something I initially saw uh, in a Don Green book for sure. And I'm sure the first few times I read it, I thought, yeah, okay, visualize. Yeah, okay, I can, I can see myself on stage. Next page, you know. But really, uh, I think you can have basically all the same brain activity through visualization and, and coax yourself into that quality performance. So I'd love to hear what it's like actually doing your job. Uh, again, the, the experience itself um, also going between the two, if that just kind of feels normal at this point, or if that's ever something you have to strategize. And if you ever get to the point where it feels 
normal where it it doesn't feel like you're playing with the group that you are playing with does it ever start to feel like your reality right well going between the two instruments that's something um that just takes a little bit of practice primarily i'm sure we can all remember as students when you're in studio class and everyone wants to play first because they're warmed up well not necessarily first but soon sitting there and getting cold and then playing is more difficult. Um, and I remember that same feeling, but someone's got to go last. And it's that same feeling when you sit through a whole movement and then you pick up an instrument that you haven't played and you got to just come in on a note. After a while, that gets a little more normal. Uh, and also you probably make your reads such that they are a little bit more responsive or something you know you just you just know um what's going to happen when you blow into that instrument you can also practice it um i've had that before i've had there's something really difficult some uh shostakovich cello concerto or something and you're playing contrabassoon in one movement through a whole movement and then you pick up your bassoon and you got to do just a bunch of low quiet quarter note and quarter note rest low b's over and over and over and over and over again. And there's no one else playing. Not fun, not for me. That's not what I do on my days off. <laughs> and so I remember just totally exploding in rehearsal, you know, just like, well, that was horrible. You know, and Yo-Yo Ma is right there. <laughs> Lovely. I'm sure he's learning so much from me. So anyway, <laughs> Type up my resignation letter, and that was the last time I played the orchestra. No, okay. So, so then I, uh, so uh, I ended up. I would go home. I'd get out my instrument. I would soak up the reed that I had chosen to play this piece, and I would find the note, get get good at it, get comfortable with it, warm it up, and then I'd leave for ten or fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. And I'd come back, give it a whack, try it out. Okay, leave the room again. Just do it over and over and over until. Uh, I had to get used to that weird energy. Like, seriously, I'm about to play this without warming up? Well, now I, I did it five times yesterday on my own with all the comfort and it eventually got better. And so it, it's truly, it's more mental than I think uh, than anything. But even though it's mental, it still takes a little bit of preparation for me. So the switching back and forth, yeah, that's, that's, that's just something you get used to. As far as being in the orchestra feeling normal, nope, it doesn't feel normal. And um, I mean, maybe it's a little bit more normal. I'm sure my first rehearsal felt less normal than it does now. I'm sure there are certain things that I'm more comfortable with. But if we are playing and it's sounding extra good and the orchestra's particularly beautiful sounding or there's just an immense amount of power that you cannot ignore or playing in some gorgeous hall and Ricardo Muti is just nailing it, it's hard not to go, wow, this is really cool, you know? So I hope, I, I don't think that will ever wear off. Um, it's luck, it's at a, I don't know, the performances can be uh, arresting enough that it can snap you out of any humdrum sort of attitude, you know, oh, another concert, we did it last night, we're doing it tomorrow night. But then there'll be, there's always some moment in concert where you go, whoa, these people are not joking around. So that's, that is fun to hear. And you know, that would happen in Kansas City as well. They have a gorgeous hall there, the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts. And I guess, wow, it's been open for maybe nine years now, something like that. But I was gonna say it's a new hall. Nope, I'm old. So <laughs> um, anyway, it's a beautiful hall. And it, you know, or there's an audience all around you and everything and just that space and the way the orchestra sounds in that hall, it would just bring you out of that uh, routine mental space and think, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. I gotta take a mental picture. I need to soak this up for sure. The way you describe your journey to the Chicago Symphony is like the perfect intersection of preparation and luck. And when you go all the way back to that moment in your high school gym playing with the Austin Symphony, um, you can, it seems like it could go either of two ways. You could say, 
everything is equally important. So everything has a ton of pressure or everything is equally important. I'm free. Which do you feel that? And which one is it for you? Wow. That's a really good point. Um, you know, I feel like I wasn't thinking about a lot of pressure or a little pressure. Certainly when I was a high schooler, I had no clue that any of that stuff was going to happen. I certainly didn't even think, uh, well, next year you're going to graduate and be in college. And this guy is the guy who hires you for gigs. I wasn't even thinking that, you know, I wasn't even thinking one year in advance. So there's a little bit of luck there for sure. Cause I just wasn't even thinking I wasn't planning or scheming or preparing because, or any of that. Um, I was just kind of just, I liked music. And so I wanted to sound my best. I think if anyone really enjoys music and they are a performer, not only does good music move them in a positive way, but music that sounds bad is something that affects us more deeply than the average Joe as well. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to sound my best as much as I possibly could. I've certainly done otherwise plenty of times, um, but I'm always trying to sound my best. And I think the luck portion for me is more about, you don't know which opportunities are going to come up when, and you won't even know necessarily that you are in an opportunity when it is happening. You just need to try your best and the right people might hear you at the right time. You just never know. And sure, I think if things had played out differently and I had sounded terrible that day in the high school gym or whatever, um, I probably wouldn't have gotten as many gigs in the Austin Symphony. And maybe it would have sounded better later. Maybe I would have had to go play for him in his house and do a little audition or something. You know, who knows? And then maybe I, maybe it wouldn't be in the Chicago Symphony. Maybe it'd be somewhere else. Um, I think there's, there's probably multiple options of it turning out well. This is just one avenue. And it's the only one I'm going to really get to know because it's happened now. Um, but there are plenty of other ones. Um, I, I mean, I've taken plenty of auditions and gotten close or not gotten close. And maybe if I had won one of those, I'd be in one of those orchestras. And maybe that would have led me to another part of the country. And who knows, you know, you just, uh, there's so much out of your control. The one thing that is in your control is uh, your own musical progress. Like how, how hard uh, you work at your craft. And if you've, uh, if you, if you're starting to sound good and keeping it up, opportunities will come. And then some of those will start to really pay off. You don't know which ones though. Um, that's, I think the annoying thing about an audition is it's a very clear opportunity and everyone works really hard for that opportunity. And then they have to only pick one person. And so, uh, everyone's thinking, well, this is my opportunity. As soon as I do this, I will be in the Louisville orchestra, but only one of those people are right. And so, uh, but all that work that those other people did is not lost. It just that, that energy will be carried into their next audition because they're going to learn something and then they'll carry that into their next audition. So I don't, I don't feel it as pressure because there's something always around the corner. Hmm. I love that. Along those lines, what have you learned about auditioning being on the other side of the screen and now listening to auditions as part of your position? I have learned that at least speaking for myself, I want everyone to be the winner. I remember feeling like I was walking on a tightrope as an auditioner. And if I step one foot in the wrong place, I'm gonna get cut. Uh, but we don't wanna cut people. We've, I've definitely sat on audition panels where we sat there for five days and then we didn't pick anyone. And that is such a waste of time. It's very exhausting sitting there and just listening as intently as you can and taking notes to the same music for five days or more, hundreds of people, and then not picking anyone is terrible. Not to mention all the cost for all the people that flew there and all of their emotional needs and 
all their hopes and dreams. You know, it's just a lose, lose. When everyone loses, it's truly, it's truly not good. And we're there to make the orchestra better. We're there to add someone that's going to, you know, bring it to those performances. And uh, so every, every person that goes on that stage, it's another opportunity for greatness. So I'm, I'm the biggest fan of that person right before they play. And I'm hoping that they, they allow me to keep being their biggest fan. So it's, it's actually quite positive. I, I always felt the negative judgment on the other side, but actually it was nothing but people hoping and crossing their fingers. Maybe this will be the person that just really nails the audition. And I think that's such a more positive place to come from because that is what's happening on the other side. Because you know, after a big day of auditions and, and no one made it through, everyone is down and exhausted. Well, see you tomorrow, try again tomorrow. It's the same thing, you know, if you make 10 reads and you put your life into all 10 and then you try all 10, it's like, oh gosh, I'll make <laughs> 10 more tomorrow. You know, every time you try that read for the first time, you're thinking maybe this one will be good. It's that same feeling when you're sitting on an audition panel, you're really hoping. I would love to ask you about how your reads have evolved over your time in the job. Have they evolved? Uh, do you require different things now than you did when you were first starting out? Yes. Yes, they have evolved and not always for for the better. Um, the orchestra plays with an extremely wide dynamic range. They play very loud and they play very quietly and in tune, which I apparently don't like doing. <laughs> <laughs> You're like soft and in tune? Yeah, get out one or the other. And how about you guys just come in when I come in? <laughs> um, yeah, so I have found that, and this is obvious, that playing quietly on the bassoon is difficult. It's always been tricky for me, and it still is. I'm sure I can play more quietly than I used to be able to play. But the, the bar keeps being raised, either by me or the groups that I'm playing with. And so reaching that bar is just as difficult as it was when I was a student. Um, and so I have tried different things. I don't even think I know I'm trying different things. I think the scraping that I'm doing slowly changes as I'm sick of being this flat or this sharp or you know this unresponsive or too responsive or all sorts of things. And so um, I think right now what I'm trying to deal with um, is trying to balance the strength of the read so that it is a normal read. I don't want to play on some weird specialty read that plays that one note that's hard for the week. I want to be able to play music. And the, the demands of the orchestra are such that it's very easy for me to over-scrape and be overly demanding on the read. Every time I come into this office now, I try to be very cognizant of what am I actually trying to achieve? Am I trying to fix me or am I trying to fix the read? And I think I, I've been in the orchestra now seven years. I guess it's my eighth season or something. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, yeah. So uh, coming up on seven and a half years in the orchestra, I think I spent a lot of that time blaming the read for various things, which I think is okay to do because there's good cane and bad cane and we don't need to be spending our time banging our head against a wall with a bad piece of cane on the end of our instrument. But you can take that to the extreme and not work on you. And so um, I try to be cognizant of that fork in the road. And so now when I do my long tones or the note is not where I need it to be or as quiet or as loud, I, I ask not only what could I scrape, what could I do to change the read? What could I do to make this read good enough? Uh, it's happened multiple times where I bring a read that's oh so close to orchestra hall and ask one of my colleagues to try it. And they go, 
this reed's great. It's better than what I'm playing on. And when they say that, it's usually after the concert is over. And, well, <laughs> you, but, but you sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if that reed's not as good as mine, then what's the deal? Well, the answer is it, you need to work on you a little bit more, Miles. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've definitely given my read to colleagues and they just kind of run through a couple excerpts, no problem. Uh, what? Give me that thing. That's my read. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go home and I try to play those same excerpts with, with uh, less success. But just even knowing that someone else likes it, it's like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. So, um, but yeah, I think uh, playing on reads that are too weak, too overscraped, that's something I've spent plenty of time doing and I'm really trying to coax myself out of that which is difficult to do because I think oh it's going to be great and then you know in that moment in the concert when it's like no it needs to be this quiet and not that sharp <laughs> like well maybe I can take up a little more cane you know <laughs> screw the ideals let's just scrape away so it's a balancing act and I'm, I'm still working on it for sure for sure uh, before COVID put a pause on things, uh, orchestras like yours get to do some pretty cool traveling. And I wonder if you could tell us some uh, cool experiences you've had or stories you've had getting to tour. Absolutely. I remember after I graduated from my graduate school experience, I was in Houston I was teaching, I think I had 16,000 students at the time. It was a heavy load. Um, <laughs> I was, I, I would always go to a friend's Facebook page. His name is Ethan Bensdorf. He plays trumpet in the New York Philharmonic. And he was one of those people that got a big job right away, right out of school. Or I don't know if he finished school, I have no idea. And as motivation, I would just look through his tour photos because that I felt like was one of the coolest parts of one of the uh, bigger orchestra job was traveling and playing all those different halls and eating all that food, going to museums. And, you know, it's like, that looks like work. That looks like the kind of work I want to be doing. And uh, so I would, you know, if I didn't feel like practicing, I was like, all right, get out the Facebook book Ethan Bensdorf <laughs> tour albums like okay I'm gonna go practice my scales you know so that, <laughs> that was very motivating so yeah when I finally got to do that that was really exciting um the first tour that I went on was uh of the Canary Islands which is really unusual I think uh I've learned now that orchestras usually go to kind of the big cities that everyone has heard of everyone goes to Vienna everyone goes to Paris um, those kinds of places. Everyone goes to Tokyo, which, I mean, that's great. <laughs> I'm happy with that. But the Canary Islands, that was, a, that was an unusual tour for the orchestra. And that was the, happened to be the first one I was going to be going on. Got my, I, I, I won the audition in August and they said, well, you're going to the Canary Islands in January. And so it was negative 17 degrees when we took off in Chicago. And it was like 65 degrees when we landed. <laughs> and, it, you know, the, the hotel was right there on the beach. And you could see the hall or along the curvature of the coast. There's the hall in the distance. I thought, yeah, this is pretty great. So um, we did Canary Islands and Essen, Germany and Luxembourg. It's kind of an unusual tour for the orchestra and kind of a shorter one as well. Um, but the tours are great. I would say the ultimate highlight so far, and I have a, you can't see it, but there's a poster here about the computer from these performances, was playing in the Music Verein in Vienna. Mm. Ricardo Muti is a big star in Vienna. They, you know, that whole city is all about classical music. And so Ricardo Muti fits the bill quite nicely for them. And we were playing Verdi's Requiem with their chorus in the music variety, that hall is amazing. It sounds incredible. I remember at the end, I mean, many, many gorgeous moments throughout that piece and through that performance. I had a, you know, a family member, a couple family members there. It was really just everything worked out great. This is like fall of 2014. And I remember at the end, the audience just went bananas totally lost us 
for a long time. And it happens occasionally here, but happens more often in Europe where, you know, everyone's clapping at their own speed. And then at, at one moment, it all coalesces in this cha, 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 cha. And everyone's clapping at the same time. And when it's a packed hall, standing room only, people standing in the back and everyone's clapping as loud as they can on the beat, it's, right, it's really a powerful experience. And so the orchestra's packing up at this point and they're still doing that. They're still clapping, they're still clapping. People are leaving the stage, clapping. Now, the only people that are left are four bassoons from the Verge Breakfast, so there's four. Four bassoons swabbing out their instruments, a couple of clarinets, that's about it. I think there's clarinet. <laughs> so, who cares right this is a double read podcast i love your attitude that's my favorite thing ever <laughs> and so and so uh they're still clapping no one is leaving i mean the hall is packed and the stage is empty there's like six people on stage and i'm thinking what is going on they're waiting for ricardo muti to come back on stage they want to give him one more massive ovation and then, you know, a few minutes go by and then here he comes, Ricardo Muti, onto an empty stage. Cha, 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 cha. It was incredible. Mm. The, the passion for classical music there was something I had never seen before. And the performance deserved it as well. The orchestra sounded incredible. Ricardo Muti can be very, very inspiring. When he is on, it can't be better. And so, uh, we happened to be on tour, basically. <laughs> I mean, that's a great tour memory, but if that had happened in Chicago, it'd still be the greatest memory. But that hall is very, very special. Vienna Philharmonic is really lucky to play there all the time. But we've seen a lot of great places, a lot of great places. We're supposed to go on tour in the summer. I don't know if it's going to happen. And there's cities that I haven't been to with the orchestra yet. But, you know, it'll happen no matter what. Someday we'll, we'll get back on tour again. Definitely one of my favorite parts of the job. That sounds incredible. Um, would you be willing to regale us with perhaps a funny or embarrassing memory of something that has happened to you in a performance? Oh my gosh. Something funny that has happened. I remember in middle school, I was very excited about my first bassoon concert my first concert playing the bassoon. And I think we were playing Indiana Jones, which has a terrible bassoon part, but nonetheless, <laughs> I was very excited. I mean, while we're playing that, I was thinking, maybe I should be playing the trumpet apparently, but <laughs> nonetheless, I was down there in the depths playing the bassoon part. Come on, John Williams, give us some better bassoon parts. Jeez. <laughs> so, Anyway, I was very excited and somewhere near the beginning of the concert, I stood up and I uh, dragged my reed along the entire length of the person sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I played that performance on half of a reed. Literally, you take a bassoon reed and you take half the blades away. That's what I was working with. <laughs> So I, I was still excited to be there, but I thought, you know, uh, this is going to be a little more challenging than I realized it's going to be. <laughs> right, another, I guess another fun story. Um, I, my senior year, I had a bassoon solo in the marching program and I was sitting on the sidelines and I would play my little ditty at the beginning of the marching show. In Texas, marching band is a big deal. And the biggest deal marching bands march the weird instruments. So they'll have like a bassoon solo or like a didgeridoo chorus or something like that. <laughs> and so I had a little bassoon solo. And then uh, a band parent would take the bassoon for me because I was done and I was a uh, drum major. So I, I had to like wave my hands around. And so the band parent took my bassoon you know they don't know what a bassoon is they don't know how to carry a bassoon but there there it goes bye <laughs> and they would take my reed and you know just took everything and i would just immediately leave not watching or helping or anything so at the end of the show it was always my uh uh 
what I had to do at the end of the show was go look for the band parent. Where's my instrument? Where's my read? Let's go find the stuff. And I see this woman running down the track with my bassoon. She's holding it with one hand only by the top of the bell. <gasps> no! And running. She's running. <laughs> and screaming, I don't know how to hold it. <laughs> And I was like, you don't say. Somehow the bassoon was fine. The bassoon was fine. And she handed me my reed case. Now the reeds, for those of you who don't play, the reeds go flat. And then the case goes over it so that it's flat. She had put the reeds sideways and then closed the case so she had accordion, my read. I mean, and when you're in high school, you have one read max. That was my <laughs> high school read. What's I gonna do with that? So, yeah, that was an exciting. Crying <laughs> <laughs> <Ryan>, right now. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> That is an amazing <laughs> mental image. I don't know how to <laughs> Running down the track. <laughs> what a strange, what a strange, uh, I mean, why would that be your plan? You don't know how to hold something. You're not sprint with it. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's amazing that that bassoon survived. Oh my God. Our question we usually close with is very contemplative, and I feel like it's a little bit of a left turn. <laughs> That's incredible. It'll just be like hilarious laughter. And then the last question is. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? <laughs> what advice do I have? Um, the first step is ask yourself, how much do you love music? It's okay to do something other than music. And it's hard to feel that truth when you're sitting in the band hall and all your friends are in band. Um, but if it's not what you wanna do, that's totally okay. But if it is what you want to do, then welcome to the club and uh, get ready to work hard in a way that needs to be creative. There are going to be so many little problems to solve. And if you can come about those solutions and as, with as many angles as possible, then you can find the solution. Um, it's okay if you don't like practicing. It's okay if you don't feel like it. It's whether you do it or not. Mm -hmm. And it's not about the hours that you practice. It's about the quality of the practicing. I was, I've never been a fan of practicing. I've, I've, that's not, some people really enjoy just having some solitary time in a room by themselves and working on the smallest detail. That's just not a part of my personality, um, but it's something I've got to do. And uh, so you got to get a little bit comfortable uh, with putting in some hours, but also they need to be quality hours. And a quality 30 minutes is worth more than four hours of not quality playing, I would say, for sure. You can walk up and down the halls of any high school band program or undergrad program or master's program or anywhere and hear people doing repetitive practicing and there are mistakes in each repetition, which the brain is recording and loving and absorbing and is ready to repeat that when it goes on stage. It's very difficult to hear someone practicing diligently and slowly and methodically and creatively so that their brain is getting only the instructions it needs to repeat the product that you wanna put out there. That's so difficult to do. It's not just about practicing, it's practicing how to practice. 
Um, I, just like this profession, any, any profession that you go into is gonna require an incredible amount of passion and uh, energy for years. And it's going to get so frustrating and so annoying. And if you care about it, it's also very personal. Well, between those three, I would want to quit at that point. And I've certainly wanted to quit many, many times, not because I didn't like music, but because it wasn't going the way I wanted it to go. And if it wasn't going to go the way I wanted it to go, then, then I don't want it to go at all. I'm not interested in garbage music. I like good music, but playing good music is really difficult to do. It can be very difficult to do. So just know that those storms are, and those big waves are gonna come crashing, but you just get back up and you keep trying and keep problem solving because it's what you wanna do. It's what you love to do. And then those good performances will happen they're small little moments, but they will keep you going through all the storms in the future. Miles, this was a wonderful way to spend an hour. Thank you so much for talking with us on the podcast. We can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for this invitation. I've been on a podcast. Look at me, mom. <laughs> So we hope you enjoyed that hilarious interview with Miles Maynard because it was a lot of work for me to bring our laughing levels down to a place where they would not make you deaf. <laughs> so I really do hope you enjoyed it because I put a lot of work into the audio editing of that actually. And if you did enjoy it, help us out by following us on social media and giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It does make a difference. Galit, who's coming up on the next episode? The next episode features the wonderful, the iconic, the one and only Pedro Diaz, solo English horn of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Jackie, we got to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. Oh, I almost just pushed end instead of stop recording. That would have been- Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>